Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and encamped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. Welcome to everybody. I want to say a special welcome to our friends from the Well Church there in the back. Y'all want to raise your hands or something? Chris Brewster and so many dear friends at the Well Church have been some of our closest partners in the gospel for many years. And they meet every week to worship right over there. So Chris said this week, how about we come walk over and worship with y'all? And we said, that's great. Can you bring some chairs? And here we all are. Thanks be to God. And uh, so we're excited to serve with you, not, not just to worship with you today, friends from the Well Church, but to serve alongside of you as co-laborers in the family of God every day and every week. So thank you uh, for being among us here. Everybody, let's welcome them one more time. And if after our sermon towards the end, I'm going to call Chris up here to lead us in a prayer and share anything he wants with us. But for now, I want to ask you to join me in turning our attention to this text of scripture that Layla read to us from Exodus 17. What we find in this text of scripture is that God's people, the people of Israel, are trapped in cycles of sin. They're trapped in cycles of sin. I'll show that to you more clearly in a moment. But I just want to say from the beginning of our time studying the scripture today that this is incredibly relevant for us. Because many of us here know from our own experience just how frustrated, helpless and even hopeless it can feel to be caught in a destructive cycle of sin. We know that from our own experience. Many of us here have experienced what it's like sometimes for years or more to be stuck in what is an obvious cycle of sin. We know we shouldn't do it. Most of the time we don't want to do it, but we keep turning back to it. And we're just going to have real talk today. We can talk about cycles of pornography abuse. We can talk about cycles of substance abuse, whether it's alcohol or drugs. There might be others of us here that we're 
were caught in cycles of sin that we didn't even recognize it as a sin cycle until it had already done so much damage in our life. Cycles of greed, cycles of selfishness, cycles of gossip that destroy families and relationships. We're not talking about a one-time slip-up or a one-time rebellion against God. That's serious enough. But we're talking about sin cycle. So everybody say the word cycle. Today we find God's people, Israel, stuck in a sin cycle. And this is written for our instruction as disciples of Jesus today in Oklahoma City in the 21st century. It's written for our instruction as a warning Don't do what Israel does. But it's also, I think, written to point us to the grace of God and to the fact that there is hope. Some of us here already know how destructive sin cycles can be, but our problem is we feel like there's no hope. So everybody, I need you to help me out. Let's preach it to each other from the beginning. Turn to your neighbor, say, there is hope. And our hope has a name. What's his name? Somebody tell me. That's oh, good. Y'all knew the answer. Great job. Our hope has a name and his name is Jesus. And. I, I don't I hate to spoil the main point of the sermon, but since Jared already preached my sermon during prayer time anyway, let's just go ahead and say here, friends, our hope today, our gospel hope for ourselves and for people in our community who may be stuck in decades long or even generational cycles of destructive behavior is that the grace of God in Jesus Christ is stronger than any cycle of sin. That's our hope. We need that word. And we need to be instructed by the word of God for how to take hold of that grace of God. The, the root problem here in Exodus is that the people are not listening to God's word. They're not listening to his gracious offer of renewal. Their hearts are hard. So before we go any further, I just want to pause and pray. I'm going to be silent for a moment so you can pray. Would you just join me in asking that the Lord would give every one of us here soft, soft, attentive hearts. Before the word of God. Our father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And this morning, I especially want to thank you not only that you forgive our sins, but there is power in the name of Jesus to break every chain, to break every chain of sin that would enslave. Generational cycles can be broken. Deeply ingrained habits of folly and rebellion can be broken. Thought patterns that keep us believing the lies of the enemy instead of the life-giving word of God can be broken. And in this moment, we say once again, we are desperate for your help to do that work. No word of John Mark can do that work. We need the word of God. We need the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we pray for each one of us that our hearts would be soft, that our minds would be attentive, that you would shine light into our minds, that you would interrupt our cycles of foolishness this morning, and that you would give us the grace and the wisdom to press on towards maturity and the grace and the wisdom and the perseverance we need to help friends and neighbors in our community who are caught in these cycles. For all of that, we give you the glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, our mediator. Amen. Well, in order to think about these sin cycles we're talking about, I want to take a second first to note what is the situation that God's people are in 
in which their sin is being exposed. And the situation is that God is leading his people through the desert. Now, I want to emphasize the, the point here that they didn't just accidentally wander into the desert. God is leading them into the wilderness. Look with me at verse one. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. And then here's the key words. You might underline these words according to the commandment of the Lord. They are where they are because God told them go there. I don't know about you, but sometimes in the Christian life, I think God has wanted to teach me patience and wisdom. But I've just wanted God to say, do this, John Mark, in this difficult situation, just do this, go there. And he's trying to teach me to meditate on his word and to pray and to seek counsel and to make free, responsible, wise decisions. But the people of Israel here got what we want so often. God just said, go over there. He's directing them. And not only is he directing them by his word through his servant Moses, but let's not forget there's a huge pillar of cloud by day that turns into a pillar of fire by night. And God just said, follow that cloud. So some of us are used to in our morning quiet times praying, Lord, what should my major be? Lord, should I ask her out? Lord, where should I live? Lord, which Bible study should I help with and come away? Not sure. But in this case, God's just like, there's the cloud. Follow the cloud. The direction is very clear, but this this can be either very comforting or very disturbing when we consider the rest of the verse. God's the one who told them to go, but look at the end of verse one. He led them to a place where there was no water for the people to drink. Look again at verse three it says, but the people thirsted there for water. God led them on purpose into a thirsty place. He led them into a dry desert. If we're going to be mature in our walk with Jesus, this is something that we need to understand. Those of us that have been together for the last three weeks, we've been thinking about this fact that God will lead his people into the wilderness for his purposes. Let's think about this in relation to Psalm 23. We all love Psalm 23 because it says the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He's going to meet all of my needs. Isn't that good news, everybody? He leads me into what? He leads me, yeah, into green pastures. He leads me by still waters. That sounds great. Don't you want Jesus to lead you into green pastures where you can lay down and relax in the shade and drink still waters? That is true. God does that. But green pastures is not the only place that Jesus leads his people. Still waters is not the only place that Jesus leads his people. Even before we get out of Psalm 23, we find David praying, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You are with me. And in the book of Exodus, we've seen God, according to his wisdom, seems to have some priorities that are higher priorities than our comfort. He seems to be concerned about our holiness. He seems to be concerned about our lasting joy. He seems to be concerned about making us mature people who are strong in our faith. And sometimes that means leading us into dry, desolate, thirsty places. Exodus has told us that. In the last few weeks, we have seen in chapter 16 and, and at the end of chapter 15 that Exodus told us God led them out there to that desert wilderness place in order to test them. Everybody say the word test. And now I'll say in your hearing for the third week in a row, when you hear that word test, don't think of sitting down in desks with a multiple choice test that you're filling out. The word testing here is like what Proverbs speaks about when it says the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. 
So the picture in our mind should be the picture of a miner who gets some ore from the mine and then shoves it into the fire. And the fire is going to reveal what is there. If there is no precious metal, the whole thing is going to burn up. But if there is precious metal, the experience of being shoved into that fire will refine, it will purify, it will transform. So God's not just interested in revealing what's inside of his people. He's interested in refining them. This is about transformation. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say transformation. So if God has you going through a dry and desolate and discouraging desert place, don't lose hope. You could trust that God has a good purpose for you. But you also need to look at this text and say, we want to go through the wilderness like Jesus, not like the people of Israel. We read in the Gospels that the Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness for a very similar purpose, to be tempted by Satan, and yet he held fast to the word of God. But Israel's not doing that here. In the wilderness, you see, it's a place with no water. It's a place where God is allowing his people to go through some discomfort. God is going to provide for them, but he is on purpose delaying his provision so that they can go through a time of discomfort, a time of difficulty in which they have a choice. On one hand, their choice can be to say in this desert time, God, I don't like being out here, but I trust you and I'm calling on you to help. Give us what we need. Give us the water. Give us the strength to trust you in the meantime. And if if they had chosen to do that, then they would have got to see God answering their prayers and their faith would have been strengthened. Their relationship with God would have gone deeper. But instead of that, they choose to persist. In the sin of unbelief, which is then manifesting in all sorts of other kinds of rebellious sins, their sin is being exposed. As we look at this text, we learn some important things about sin cycles, because this text should give us. Deja vu, if we've been here for the last couple of weeks. Look at the word grumble, how it shows up in this text. Verse 3, the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled. Everybody say grumbled. grumbled. They grumbled against God. They grumbled against Moses, but we saw last week when they're grumbling against Moses, they're really grumbling against God. Now, last week in chapter 16, this word grumble or grumbled or grumbling appeared eight different times. Remember that? And then back in chapter 15, the word grumbling showed up. What we're seeing here is this is not just a one-time incident. It's becoming a settled pattern of sin. They sinned once when there was no water to drink. And they grumbled against God, and then God provided water to drink. Then they sinned a second time when there was no food to eat. They grumbled against God, but God in his grace provided manna from heaven. And they still kept doubting. And then now today, there's no water again. They've been here before. They've seen God's provision, and yet this sin has become ingrained. So once again, they're grumbling against God. You see, the thing about sin is that it has an effect on our souls. When we disobey God, it has an effect on our souls in the same way that when we obey God, that has an effect on our souls. Good choices and bad choices can both become deeply ingrained habits. As a matter of fact, I'm going to teach you a couple of theology words today. You ready for this, everybody? Okay, let's talk about the word virtue and let's talk about the word vice. Everybody say virtue. Everybody say vice. In the Christian theological tradition, a lot of 
attention is paid to those two words. And a virtue doesn't just mean you do something good once. A virtue means you have chosen a certain good choice over and over again until it has become a habit. So that's the key word. Everybody say habit. And St. Thomas Aquinas says habit is second nature. You've done something over and over. At first it felt unnatural, but now it becomes natural. A vice is not just a sin you do once, but it's a sin that you do over and over until it becomes a habit. It, it makes grooves in your soul. It becomes your default reaction. It becomes your second nature. Now, Jesus Christ, when we trusted him, not only forgives our sin, but sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to spiritually empower us, to choose love, to choose faith, to choose hope. And the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow out of our lives. And as we make the choice to obey over and over and over again, that Spirit of God inside of us works in us and through us to make us more like Jesus so that these good choices become ingrained good habits. At first, after I trusted Jesus, I saw my neighbor in a hard situation. I knew to help them would inconvenience me. The Holy Spirit touched my heart, said you should go help them. And maybe I didn't want to, but maybe I thought by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to obey, obey Jesus. And I went and did it. And if you make that choice over and over and over, over time, the work of the spirit in you is such that. When you see that person in need, you actually want to go help them. Your heart was changed by the spirit as you chose to obey. That's what Paul is talking about in Second Corinthians 318, when he says with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the spirit of the Lord is transforming us into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. But it works the opposite way also, which is why the Bible warns us against the hardening effect of sin. Don't be hardened by your sin. This thing about habit we see in our everyday lives. Anybody raise your hand if you ever learned how to ride a bike while you were learning. Didn't it seem hard at first? Anybody get some skin knees, broken bones? Um, maybe you didn't break your bones. Some of us are more clumsy than others. But it was hard at first. And then you kept trying and kept trying until it became a habit. You had muscle memory and it was easy. You didn't have to think about it. Anybody who's ever played an instrument or played a sport knows that at first when you sat down at the piano to play those scales, it was hard. Or when you set, you know, went at the free throw line to start shooting free throws, it was hard. But you did it over and over thousands of times until it became second nature. Now, what I'm trying to say is the Bible teaches that that same thing happens in our moral and spiritual lives. And here today we're reading that. This habit of grumbling has become ingrained as a part of their character. And when that happens, the problem is that sin te tends to take us down deeper and deeper and deeper. It's like a spiral. It's like a funnel. I don't remember who said the, quet, the quote originally. Max Barnett, I think, was the person I heard it from. He used to always say, sin will take you farther than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay. And there's another part of it that I forgot. Ask John Kelsey after the service. Disciple of Max Barnett. And you will uh, get the whole quote. The point here is that when you start making bad choices, you never know how far it's going to take you. You never know. In this situation, we see the situation getting worse because we've read about the grumbling before. But now look at a new word that shows up in verse two. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Because right before that in verse 2, it says, therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. And then again, in verse 7, we read, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling. So that word quarreling, that means fight. That's what that means, right? 
Before, when they were grumbling, they were complaining against Moses. But Moses said, you're really complaining against God. Now it's escalated. They're fighting against Moses, which means they're fighting against God. Sin is taking them farther than they wanted to go. Get, let me just give you a pop quiz. If you pick a fight with God, guess who's going to win? It's not a good idea. Moreover, look at what the last part of verse 7 says. Because they tested the Lord. Mm. They tested God. This story that we're reading about from Exodus 17 gets referred back to a lot in the rest of the Bible. And what you hear frequently in the rest of the Bible is God saying, don't be like the people of Israel who tested me in the wilderness. You see, God is the Lord. He's the king. He's the one who is testing, refining Israel, but they are trying to put themselves in God's place. That's the rebellion, which is at the heart of this matter. They're putting themselves in God's place. They're saying, we're going to be the judges of you, God. And in their rebellion and unbelief, they are losing touch with reality. In verses three and seven, we find that certain lies that they have been believing are being repeated and new lies are being introduced. And these lies are really just irrational if you think about the situation. But here's the, the point. When you continue in sin, you will lose touch with reality. Sin distorts your vision of reality. So look with me at verse 2 for a moment. They are saying, I'm sorry, verse 3. They are saying, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They said almost the exact same thing last week. That's an old lie that's getting repeated here. And basically what's happening is they are doubting the goodness of God. Sure, God, maybe you brought us out of Egypt when we were slaves, but really you probably just brought us out here to kill us in the desert. They're doubting the goodness of God. But then we find a new lie introduced in verse 7. Because they say, is the Lord among us or not? Look at the end of verse 7. Is God among us or not? Not only are they doubting the goodness of God, they're doubting whether he's even there or not. They're shaking their fists at God, saying, we're mad at you and we don't even know if you're there. Now, this is really irrational because there is a big pillar of cloud right there. Because every morning they wake up and there's manna on the ground. God said, I'm going to give you miracle bread to feed you day by day while you're in the wilderness. And every morning it's there except for the Sabbath. And he told them on the Sabbath it won't be there, but gather enough for two days a day before the Sabbath. And I will miraculously make the bread last day by day. They're witnessing miracles with their own eyes. They have already seen God miraculously provide water. They saw God break the power of Pharaoh and overthrow all the false gods of Egypt. They, they walk through the Red Sea on dry land. It doesn't make any sense to think this way. But listen, friends, when we are choosing to rebel against God, when we are choosing to walk in sin, our vision of reality gets distorted and the enemy will take advantage of our sin to get a foothold in our life and start telling us lies over and over and over. And we're so susceptible and gullible in our fallen sinful state that if we hear the same lie over and over and over, we start to believe it's true. They're getting deluded. They're deceived. I just want to plead with your heart for a moment right now. I know there's some folks in this room that 
you are in one of these sin cycles right now. And the Holy Spirit's touching your heart. You're aware of it. And I want to speak a word of warning from a heart of love. I have seen it many times. If any of us persists in a cycle of sin over time, we will lose touch with reality and it will take us places we never thought we'd go. Lies will start making sense to us. We can be really smart and we can feel like I'm being a realist. I'm being very rational and logical, but we will be total fools who have lost touch with reality. Because the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. So if you're in that place, I just want to plead with you from my heart. Jesus is gracious. Just repent. Don't wait any longer. Bring the sin into the light. Pray to God for his help and return to the path of trust and obedience. Now, if you're there or if someone you know is there. And right now, the fear of God is being awakened in your heart because you're like, yeah, sin is dangerous. Sin is destructive. You might start feeling helpless or hopeless right now. But good news. We're about to shift gears and we've got some encouragement for you because I want to ask this question. How does God respond just in this text? First of all, how does God respond to Israel's cycle of ever increasing rebellion? And the answer is he responds with grace. Everybody say grace. Grace is amazing. That's why we think about it. Grace means kindness that God shows us that we do not deserve. If you're here today and you're feeling discouraged by the negative cycles in your life, maybe even generational cycles in your family, and you're like, I see myself doing the same stuff my dad did or my mom did or my grandma or my grandpa did, and I feel helpless, I feel trapped I don't know where to go. I want to say to you this word again. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is stronger than any cycle of sin. It's stronger than any cycle of sin. And before we look at some of the details of this text, I just want to jump to the New Testament for a second and remind you of the words of Paul from Romans 7. In Romans 7, Paul is talking about the fact that he keeps doing the bad stuff he doesn't want to do and the good stuff he wants to do, he doesn't do it and he feels trapped, he feels discouraged. And then in verse 24, Paul says this, what a wretched man I am. When you get to the point where you're making that confession, that's where uh, usually grace is about to erupt in your life. And he says, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Anybody who's been through a 12-step program knows if you want to get help, first thing you need to recognize is you need help from someone other than you, right? I need to be rescued from somebody outside of me. And then Paul answers his question. The question is, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then he says, thanks be to God through who? Oh, we didn't know that one. Thanks be to God through who? Somebody knows it. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We got to read our Bibles, y'all. Everybody say Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He bore our sin. He rose from the grave, showing his power over sin, Satan and death to demonstrate to us that there is no power too great to be overcome by the grace of God. If anyone's in Christ, he has died to the old sin pattern. He's been raised with Christ. The power of sin has already been crucified in your life if you trusted in Jesus. If you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus, then I want to say right now, 
You are in desperate straits because you cannot solve this problem on your own. But if you'll trust in Jesus Christ by free grace, that power will be broken. That doesn't mean the problem goes away just like that automatically. There's a journey of faith that needs to follow. But the power can be broken. Now, let's come back to Exodus for a second. Let's look at God's grace in this moment. How does God respond? Well, first of all, he meets their physical need. They're grumbling against him and he's like, here's some water. He meets their physical need. That's grace. Everybody say grace. Grace. What justice without grace might have looked like is lightning bolts. Strike Israel. Let's start over. But instead, here's some water to drink. You're thirsty. Here's some water. He intended to provide for them from the beginning. There was never a moment in which God was going to let them get thirsty until they died. He was always going to meet their need and he does meet it now. But not only that. God, in his great grace, meets their physical need in a memorable public display of his power and steadfast love because he doesn't just want to meet their physical need. He wants to meet their spiritual need. He wants to show them, guys, you can trust me. I'm strong and I love you. So he tells Moses to come up to the rock and to bring some elders of the people of Israel with him. So there's witnesses, reliable witnesses, and he goes to the rock and Moses takes the staff of God with which he had part of the Red Sea and he hits the rock and water flows out of the rock. It's a miracle. God led them to a thirsty place to show them he can give them water even in the thirsty place. And even though they've rebelled, he still shows them his mercy. This gracious act of instruction and of provision for their physical need is revealing a spiritual reality that Paul reminds us of in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you've got your Bible, you might want to flip over there. 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul is talking about this story. And he does kind of an allegorical interpretation of this story. But really what he's doing is saying the physical reality of the miracle is revealing a spiritual reality of God's grace. And let's read what he says. 1 Corinthians 10, I'm going to start in verse 1. Paul is writing to Christians like you and me that trust in Jesus Christ. And he says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. That's talking about the pillar of cloud that I was talking about. They all passed through the sea. That's the Red Sea we've been talking about. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. Talking about manna. And all drank the same spiritual drink, talking about this story, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. That's quite a statement. Everybody say the rock was Christ. Now, let's talk about what this means a little bit. The first thing I want to say is this passage, just like Hebrews three and four, just like Jude. Remind us over and over that the God who revealed himself to Israel and saved Israel and the book of Exodus is the same God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And his name is Jesus. The God who reveals himself at the burning bush as I am who I am is the one God. Everybody hold up the finger. Say there's only one God. One God in reality. One God in the Old Testament. One God in the New Testament. His name is Yahweh. I am who I am. In Jesus Christ, he reveals a new name for the same God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Trinity. He has always been the Holy Trinity. We didn't get to know the Son as Jesus until he came to the earth, but he was already the Son of God. And what Paul is saying, friends who follow Jesus today, you're following the same guy 
who provided for the people of Israel in the wilderness. And when God made the water come from the rock, there's a symbolic significance to this miracle that Jesus Christ himself is our rock, our steadfast foundation from whom streams of living water flow to us. So there's a spiritual reality here that even though they are faithless, God is faithful. And even when they're persisting in cycles of sin, Jesus Christ is with them by grace, pursuing them and providing for them. Now, we got to be honest today about a fact in relation to this particular story. And the fact is that the people of Israel are going to continue to choose to reject God's grace. Even after this third miraculous provision, they're going to keep going in this sin pattern. And it's going to keep escalating until eventually God's gracious acts of provision and instruction are going to give way to his gracious act of discipline. Still for the good of his people. But this whole generation, spoiler alert, they're not going to go into the promised land. God could have easily taken them there. But there are consequences for sin. Here's a fear of God moment again. In Christ, even in Jesus, when we believe in Jesus, there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there may still be consequences we have to deal with. It's a serious word. And as a matter of fact, we could continue reading in just 1 Corinthians 10. I just read you the first four verses, but listen to what Paul says in verse 5. He says, nevertheless, with most of them, namely the, the children of Israel in Exodus 17, with most of them, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1, 5, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. This is about the discipline of God. It's a sobering word. And the rest of the Bible points to this story as a warning. Don't do what Israel did. Let me just read to you one of those examples. There are many of them. But I'm going to read to you from Psalm 95. If you got a Bible, you can flip over there or you can just listen to me. The first five verses of Psalm 95 are praising God for being the sovereign king over all kings who loves his people, a God of grace and justice. And then in Psalm 95, beginning of verse six, we read this. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. It's a warning. Don't be like Israel in this story. Now, as we get ready to move towards a conclusion today, I, I got to pick up. A, I'm going to ask you a question. We got to pick up a thread. I said at the beginning of this sermon, God's grace is stronger than our cycles of sin. And now we got to ask the question, is it true? Is it true? Because look at what happened to Israel here. They're persisting in sin. And the answer is, yes, it is true. It is true that God's grace is stronger. And we need to leave here filled with hope. But we need to leave here filled with hope in a way that is sober minded. Let me talk to you a few reasons you can know it's true that God's grace is stronger than sin cycles. First, I want to point out that all those warning passages 
like 1 Corinthians 10, 5 and Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3 and 4 that point back to this passage and don't be like Israel. The reason they are there is because we really do have a choice. We don't have to do what Israel did. The warning is there because you really have a choice. And the warning itself is a means of grace in which God is saying to you, I have something better for you if you'll trust me. That's the first point here. Second point is I want to encourage you today that we as Christians have a much greater experience of grace than these Old Testament people of God did. Why? We have Jesus Christ and we have the Holy Spirit revealed to us in a way they could never imagine. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Jesus Christ rose again. Jesus Christ poured out the Holy Spirit in a way that ushered in a new era of God's relationship with his people. Not only do we have a better external revelation of God's grace, we can look at the cross of Jesus and you can look at the bleeding corpse of that man and you can say, that is God and he's doing it for me. That's how much he loves me. And then you can look at the empty tomb and the resurrected Lord Jesus appearing to his disciples and you could say, that is God and there's nothing too hard for him. Nothing can stop his love, which is stronger than death. Not only that, but the spirit of God who was poured out at Pentecost was fulfilling the prophecies of Jeremiah and other other prophets from the Old Testament, that the spirit of God was going to match that external work with an internal work of God in our hearts. So we wouldn't just see outwardly the sign of God's grace, but the Holy Spirit can make us new from the inside out so that we will believe. So third point here, and this is this is the last thing I want to say before we respond to the word of God with worship and with the Lord's Supper. The God of the Bible, the God of the Exodus, the God of Jesus Christ, his grace is stronger than sin. And he has given us means of grace that we can take hold of. So I I want you to think about those words as we finish today. Everybody say means of grace. What we're saying is there is a power source available. All you got to do is plug into it. God has given us handles that we can take hold of. And these are not rocket science. They're just the normal stuff of the Christian life. Why do we read our Bibles? Why do we go to church? Why do we do the normal stuff of the Christian life? Because those normal activities are charged with omnipotent supernatural power to break cycles of sin. What are the means of grace? The word of God. The word of God. What what did we just read from Psalm 95? Today, if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. The word of God has power to save us. Hebrews 4, another passage in which the New Testament is reflecting on our text from Exodus 17, says this. For good news came to us just as to them, to us Christians, just as it came to the Old Testament saints when they heard about God's grace leading them out of Egypt. But it says, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith. With those who listened, what it's saying here is if we will simply hear the word of God with a heart of humble faith, it will change everything, which is why if you want to know something practical, if you're dealing with the cycle of sin, you need to saturate your mind and heart with the scriptures. That's why you need to come to church. That's why you need to open up your Bible and read it every single day. Don't let a day go by because it's not like the devil goes a day without speaking to you. 
That's why you need to memorize scriptures so that they're in your heart. I know you got all kinds of songs and other stuff memorized. Why not hide your, uh, stock your, your heart with words of God that are powerful to break chains and to bring life? That's why we need to listen to sermons. That's why we need to read Bible-saturated books. Listen, if you want to break these cycles of sin, God has grace and you need to plug into the word of God as a means of God's grace. God also gives us the means of grace of prayer. If you're saying, I'm trying to read the Bible, but I've got a hard heart, what do I do? Well, let me read to you a word from Jesus that I quoted last week. Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13 say this. What father among you, if his son asks him for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Friends, what we're saying is if you just keep crying out in faith, God, send the Holy Spirit to give me a new heart, to give me a soft heart, to give me a heart of faith. God will say yes is the promise of Jesus and the promise of Jesus never fails. The word is a means of grace. Prayer is a means of grace. And community is a means of grace. Again, Hebrews chapter 3, which is, as I said a moment ago, a chapter in which a New Testament writer is reflecting on our text from Exodus 17, is warning us against the deceptive nature of sin. I was talking about a moment ago. And here's, here's what we read. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. When you choose sin, it has a hardening effect. You can get in a sin cycle. And the author of Hebrews is saying, be careful, lest that happen to you. An evil, unbelieving you heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. And then he follows up with verse 13, which is this. But exhort one another. Now, that's key. Everybody say one another. Exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what we're trying to avoid. Don't get stuck in a sin cycle in which you're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But what it's saying is don't just read the Bible and pray by yourself. You need to live in a community where you're ministering to one another. And it didn't just say once a month, did it? How often did it say? Did you see the text? One person heard it. Everybody say every day. Every day, this is talking about a rich, dense kind of Christian community. Now, as a church, there's some things that we've tried to do, and there's some things we're going to try and get better at doing to facilitate that stuff with small groups, with Celebrate Recovery groups, with uh, the NAV 20s group that Kels is leading, with discipleship relationships that are happening all over the place. I'm excited about two new small groups, Lord willing, that are hopefully going to get started in the next couple months. So there are more and more places, more and more opportunities for us to do this for one another. But I want to say we're going to do everything we can to help you. But I just want to challenge everybody today. Take personal responsibility to get in relationship with Christians that you are. There's an openness in which there is gospel encouragement and gospel accountability. Gospel encouragement means we don't just get together to beat each other up for being sinners. We want to speak grace over each other. God still loves you. But gospel accountability is that we don't make the equally damning mistake of not holding each other accountable for sin. The worst thing we could do is to minimize the effects of sin and to fail to hold each other accountable for sin, which is itself a sin 
for which Jesus will hold us accountable. Instead, we need to be the kind of community, the kind of loving family that will say, sin is not okay, but God still loves you. If you'll repent, if you'll come back, if you'll accept consequences and take responsibility, there is healing in the name of Jesus. The word, prayer, community, they're all means of grace. But ultimately, what we're trusting in is not just those means, we're trusting in Jesus. As we're getting ready to go to the Lord's table, here's another means of grace for us. And I just want to speak a word of encouragement and exhortation to us today. As we go to the Lord's table, what we're doing is hearing the word of God spoken to us again and again. This word, I'm giving my body for you. I'm giving my blood for you. I made the once for all time sacrifice for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And when you take the bread, when you take the cup, it's a simple act of faith saying, Jesus, I believe. You need to hear that message that his grace is sufficient for you today. Now, since we got some extra friends here today, let me talk to you logistically how this works is in a second. We're all going to go to the back and make a line and go by that table where we'll receive the bread and the cup. At Christ Community Church, we've developed a habit over the years of some people like to come stand over here and circle up to pray with each other and take the Lord's Supper in a circle. But I'm going to ask us not to do that because I'm foreseeing a traffic jam that's going to happen today. So what I want to ask you to do is go get the bread, get the cup, and come back to your seat and take it here where we're going to sing a song together. But I also want to say to you, don't be in a hurry right now to go to the Lord's table. First of all, because there's going to be a really long line. You're going to have to stand there anyway. But second of all, and more deeply, when we go to the Lord's table in a moment, I want you to deal with God before you go to the table. It's not a time for small talk. It's not a time for catching up on how the week did. It's a time for serious business with God. You don't know what the Holy Spirit might be doing in the heart of another person. You don't want to distract them. This is a time, uh, if you need to, to sit here for a second. If you need to go talk to somebody to clear up a relationship. If there is a cycle of sin in your life that needs to be broken, it's time to bring it to the light now. And then to go to that table and hear from God this gracious word, my grace is sufficient for you. I've given my body. I've given my blood for you. This chain will be broken. So why don't you stand with me for a moment of prayer. And we're going to have the guys come forward to lead us through this time of the Lord's Supper. Our Father, we thank you for this word that is spoken to us. And I want to ask right now that your Holy Spirit would be doing the supernatural work of breaking chains. To the congregation, I just invite you, if you'd feel comfortable, to just to put your hands in front of you. Palms up in a posture of receptiveness to the grace of God. Lord, I pray as as this congregation is extending its hands to you to receive that there would be an outpouring of grace. Cycles would be broken today in the name of Jesus. Lord, where the evil one has gotten a foothold in any of our lives or in our congregation, I pray in the name of Jesus that the power of the enemy would be broken and he'd be driven away right now. In the name of Jesus Christ, God's son. Where the enemy is trying to deceive and to distract and to divide and to discourage in the name of Jesus. Would you bring truth and encouragement and the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Would you make us a community of gospel encouragement and of gospel accountability by your grace? Lord, bless the bread, bless the cup, bless us with hearts of faith to receive the gospel again. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.